Hello and welcome to Fintech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Just a couple of reminders as usual. Uh, please sign up for my newsletter at jasonpereira.ca and be sure to check out my other podcast, Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners, if you are a Canadian business owner. Now, on our today's show. Today on the show, I have Giles Sutherland, Managing Director of Growth Markets for Carta. Carta is a provider of underlying payment infrastructure for various players in the market, including many well-known fintechs. And with that, here's my interview with Giles. Well, Giles. Hi, how are you? Thanks for taking the time. Uh, thanks for having me. So, Giles Sutherland of Carta Worldwide, tell us about Carta. Uh, so, Carta is uh, what, how we describe ourselves would be a next generation issuer processor. Obvious question. Payment would be, speak. Here, yeah, here what, what's an issuer processor yes. and what would a next generation one be? And the best way to think about it, and usually if I'm describing this to someone who doesn't speak payments, is <laughs> when a customer pulls out their credit card, debit card, whatever payment utensil mm -hmm. they're going to use. Very often, they're familiar with the fact that the, the merchant or the retailer that they're giving their card to, whether it's online or in-store, is outsourcing the processing of that transaction to someone else. Mm -hmm. So you might see in the point-of-sale machine on the counter of the store, might have a first data logo, something like that, uh, or maybe the, uh, the square dongle, yeah. that nice looking white thing, uh, or Clover is the new one from First Data, or if you're online. I can't keep track of them all. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> there, there's a lot. In, and I, I think it's also, it's a very visible transaction and interface for the customer. And I think you've also seen a lot of visible innovation in that space. And so Square looks and feels different than the old school insert your card or the, you know, the even old ones like the knuckle busters. Oh God, those old ones where <laughs> exactly like go back and forth until you basically managed to rattle your hand enough. For, yeah, exactly. You know, slam your finger and cut it. Yeah. <laughs> and what most consumers don't then see and aren't aware of is once that card is presented and the transaction is going through, there's some vague idea that it goes to Visa or MasterCard and then yeah. ends up back at their bank. Don't think about what happens then. What connects all those points. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, and the reality is almost all banks actually outsource the equivalent processing functionality. So the merchant mm -hmm. is outsourcing the processing of that, let's say, accepting transaction mm -hmm. to accept payments or receive payments. A payment speak would be acquiring transactions. So you're acquiring the yeah. payment. The other side of that transaction equation is in the payment speak, the issuing side. So we're the issuing processor. So the the bank processing side of that transaction. So every time someone uses their, let's say, credit card, uh, and let's say it's a Visa or MasterCard transaction, mm -hmm. those payment networks in the middle, we call the rails, they're connecting the bank and the merchant, and then the merchant's going to yeah. have a processor. They can doing... be any number of companies connected to each other. And exactly. we take it for granted because we see a handful of logos. We see the Visa, MasterCard, American Express, Interact, whatever it is. And you know we just think it's the one giant global network. And no, they, they're there doing their thing but someone's got to tile those dots together. Precisely. And this is why I interview so many payment companies on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So tell me about the history of the company. What led to its founding? What was the opportunity that kind of made the founders basically say, you know what, we got to do this? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So the thesis on day one uh, is the thesis uh, as it is today. And, and this links to that uh, next generation part of the issuing processing. And what we're seeing now, and, and we hear a lot of buzz about this term fintech, uh, at the time fintech wasn't really a word, but what we predicted and the thesis of the business was that those underlying issuing processing platforms that are there today, it's not like it doesn't exist. They just suck. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a very direct way to put it. Uh, you know, we, we interact with banks and talk to them about their existing technology. And as much as I think on the surface, you see big shiny towers and what would otherwise be viewed as a pretty 
yeah. uh, big technology group. Banks are running on decades old mainframe technologies. Um, There's a running joke about COBOL in this in this, ep- in this show. <laughs> I, I swear to God, lately it's like almost every episode. There's a laugh about, oh yeah, COBOL programming language. I'm gonna actually get t-shirts printed up in COBOL or something because it's just getting to that point. Exactly. Um, yeah. And and the average consumer though wouldn't be aware of the fact that no. their life savings are in a bank with you know extinct uh, programming language yeah. actually holding it all together. Very extinct. <laughs> and it's interesting because there was a book written years ago. I think it was something the equivalent of of towers of glass on, on mounds of paper. And it was basically, typically what happens is all the technology that gets invested in is customer facing, right? Mm-hmm. Because to them, that is kind of the low hanging fruit. It's also the customer service one, right? Like they, they, they feel they can, you know, we can put a bunch of minimum wage people in the back room pushing paper, but the client facing people, we want that to be a good experience. So we may have to put more money into that. You know what? Technology is probably easier. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so yes, underlying infrastructure, not so good. There has to be a better way. Another another catchphrase of this podcast. To continue. <laughs> yeah. So the bet on our side was, and we could see it at the time, even if they weren't identified as fintechs, yep. new players coming into the space that would be taking more uh, modern and innovative approach using more modern technology more nimble, lighter weight without the same overhead, that same kind of legacy technology that banks have and would deliver products to consumers that Mm -hmm. would be more convenient, better value, easier, um, more, let's say, uh, adapted to what the consumers are looking for. Just like we've seen in every other sector of technology, Mm -hmm. uh, new players enter in and find better efficient ways to deliver what consumers really want. And the bet was that that same thing would take place in banking and the legacy players, which are these monolithic big companies that provide all that outsourcing technology for processing to the banks today, yep. they just fundamentally wouldn't be able to meet the needs of those new players. So our position was, let's build a new processing platform from the ground up specifically to address this new wave of what we'd now call fintechs and serve those. And so we're, we see ourselves really as kind of the backend plumbing for a new group of more nimble, innovative, customer-friendly financial service companies uh, focused specifically on payments. That's Mm -hmm. the segment within fintech that we play. And then if you extrapolate that a little further on the horizon, and we're starting to see this taking shape now, there's a scenario where in this battle for the consumer, you have new guys coming in, disrupting existing incumbents saying, well, hang on a second, we don't want to let go of this quite so easily. How do we innovate? And that question isn't quite so easy to answer. But one of the things that I think, again, if you look at what's happened in other sectors, more often than not, the existing systems aren't as easy to update and innovate with as people would like. So then that leads to- As I laugh this entire time. (laughs) So that that leads to new players. And so in a kind of crude way, we, we are almost trying to position ourselves as an arms dealer in the battle for the consumer. So if you've got the new guys coming in trying to disrupt, Great. We want to sell them some technology that can enable them. The banks don't want to let go quite so easily. No problem. We can use that technology to help banks build out similarly innovative product propositions. that are not letting go of their COBOL servers. That's the, I was going to say million dollar question, probably the hundred or billion dollar dollar question. question. I mean, geez. Yeah. yeah. So that's definitely not our, our, our core business model is really focusing on fintechs or banks that are spinning off fintechs. But I yeah. think on the long-term horizon- It's a lot easier to start from zero. More existential question about what does the existing world 
do? How, how do banks adapt to this onslaught that's uh, underway? Yeah, I did a, I did a payments podcast, not a payments, an insurance podcast recently where I actually looked up the found, the, the date that COBOL was done. It's like 1956. <laughs> it's like... Yeah, yeah, that uh, keep keep teaching your kids how to how to write in COBOL. So you're servicing. So end of the day, company wants to start some sort of payment company, some sort of some sort of. I'm leading to a conclusion here because I see some of the, the clients you have here, but. They want to start something where they have something to do with money or the movement of money. Mm -hmm. Instead of building the entire base ecosystem, they can basically piggyback on you and build the client experience over top of you. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. So give me some examples of some companies that might be recognized that have done that. Sure. So set, um, set up the spot. Right? Yeah, no, that's a great one. Um, so one, so you know, we're having this conversation in Toronto, Canada. Less of a household name here, but in other markets, very visible. A company called Transferwise, um, and I see them. And I, and it, I'll, I'm signed up for every Neo Bank I can be. Yes, <laughs> yeah. my, 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 I have a Neo Bank folder. It's how bad it is. Yeah. And I think they're worth highlighting for a couple reasons. But it, it's a good segue from what we we're talking previously about what's taking place in banking and fintech in general. Our focus is very much on the payments and movement of money, as you said. But with Transferwise, I think is. A really interesting case study in that they targeted a very specific segment of the banking, let's say, value chain. Was it international transactions or like currency transactions yeah. specifically? Yeah. So yeah. The international movement of money and, yeah. and the foreign exchange. Yeah. And if you look at current banks' offerings in that space, as well as other players, you know, Western Union or whoever else, mm -hmm. and, and each has their own focus. But let's say. A pretty common proposition would be existing banks, you've got a bank account with, let's say, a tier one bank, and you mm -hmm. want to send money to a friend or a freelance worker or your grandmother in some other country. Yeah. You go to the bank, you send that money, and you just expect that it's going to cost you a fortune, cost you a lot of money. It's going to take a long yep. time, not going to be a very user-friendly experience. So they went in very deliberately attacked that segment. So a really Western Union's greatest nightmare, but continue. Yeah. So, and, yeah. and a really, there's a lot of margin fat there, right? Oh my God. Yeah. Is there ever. So you've got a few big players doing it. So they went in and attacked that and are growing out from there. They've done a lot of really interesting things. You know, their original marketing uh, was basically spelling F-U-C-K banks but with currency symbols. Um, so I think the U was like a, a Japanese sentiment yen. shared by members of this show. But anyway, continue. Yeah, precisely. And so they got a lot of groundswell. They've launched in London first, basically picked up on... The home of international transactions, but continue. Precisely. So uh, it's something that consumers know, they can identify and say, this is a garbage user experience that I'm getting yep. charged a lot of money for. Yep. Sure, I'll use this. And then they're expanding that out. And where we then intersected with them is they said, all right, we're going to start with making money movement faster cheaper more convenient which i've used for international um international vendors on tech projects like it's just so much more convenient than trying to do it through my bank absolutely yeah. and what's especially exciting about them compared to maybe some of the other neo banks or challenger banks is because they started with attacking a very real and let's say profitable part of this ecosystem really lucrative. Um, they, they've been hugely profitable so there, as opposed to some others that start in the other end of the value chain, which is, let's say, the loss leader of a, a card product or a checking account, yeah. where there's not a lot of money to be made. They started in a, a, the profit rich or the margin rich segment and grew from there. So as they keep growing, they're then getting this flywheel effect where they can keep reducing their prices, making money movement cheaper, building that moat. Uh, and are expanding into what they call the borderless bank account. So it's a really interesting evolution. So that's basically multi-currency. So other players have that, yeah. um, the uh, Revoluts of the world, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. 
uh, have that now too. But yeah, so I love it, especially for someone who loves to travel and may in the course of a year use four different currencies. Yes. Uh, fantastic. Yeah, fantastic absolutely. Experience. So yeah, now that we're done endorsing uh, <laughs> TransferWise, <laughs> yeah. I hope we get paid for that uh, Bottom commercial. line is, is, well, they're actually, they've been approached by me on the show. So again, <laughs> so, so, so it's Revolut. That's just a hint. You guys should come on the show. <laughs> so that being said, they started off with the thing they were good at. They accepted transfers from the banks. They basically did the four FX transactions at a fair rate and, you know, shreds of the other guys. But you guys come in when they want to basically become a neobank. Precisely. Yeah. yeah. So we, we provide that back-end plumbing. Another way to phrase it, um, you know, we've uh, referred to ourselves as the engine yeah. powering some of these neobanks or fintechs. Uh, and so uh, if you wanted to use the engine analogy for an F1 team, it's not visible, might be under the hood, but you that's really a, a differentiating proposition. And so we don't want the visibility. And in a lot of ways, actually, Carta is deliberately under the radar. From a processor perspective, if you're visible or in the news, it usually means it's because you've had an outage or something bad has happened. So yeah, and you don't want to, I mean, you're letting these people have their own brand. You don't want to have brand conflict, right? Precisely. Like if you put, if you try to say, okay, can you put Powered by Carta under all your logos now? Yeah, they're gonna go find someone else. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, we're happy to play that role. And our business model is basically a, uh, a service model. So we, um, and, and kind of like an infrastructure play. So mm -hmm. we've we've done the heavy lifting. We, uh, as you asked kind of how and why the business was started, we said, we believe this is where it's going. We're gonna build a platform that can support it. Big upfront investment, we made a bet at the time that was arguably kind of ahead of the curve because the FinTech wave that we're seeing now hadn't come yet. Yeah, but it wouldn't exist without guys like you making it easy to hook it up. Otherwise, the transferizes of the world have to go around and start creating ties to every major bank out there. Exactly, and, and it's a and it's a big lift. It's a have still a, as much as we're seeing a lot of innovation in FinTech, it's a heavily regulated space. So it's not as easy as building an app in your garage. You've got to go and get it certified by the payment networks, Visa, MasterCard, there's a lot of compliance with the payments data yeah. that you're managing and kind of transacting through the systems. And all of that kind of has an upfront piece to build. And now we then scale ourselves up to grow. And as our clients grow, we grow in relation kind of linearly with yep. them. So that's um, the role that we want to play in the ecosystem is it makes sense. You're, you're a platform player, right? Like precisely. you're providing a platform and most people don't know who platform providers are except for like the outward facing ones like Windows and Apple. And, exactly. You know, and so bizarrely AWS is advertising on Super Bowl commercials. <laughs> like, do you really, like I, I, I scratched my head at that one and thought like, what percentage of the population has any clue or is going to have any clue what that is or care? <laughs> yeah. Like someone just had a marketing spend that they wanted to blow. Anyway, that's besides <laughs> the point. Yeah, Bezos, pull that one back already. So we got the, the entire fintech, but you're basically, you got names, not just the fintechs. What other kind of sectors of the economy have you gone after and, and supported? Yeah, so I think what we're seeing in the space and where we're targeting from a, from a vertical perspective, there's a really wide range of applications that are being, let's say, transformed as technologies enabling this. And so most of these are still invisible to consumers until they start interacting with that front-end brand. Mm -hmm. So if it's a neobank, like a transferwise, or we're seeing some banks, uh, tier one banks actually spinning off new brands. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one in Canada that's launching you know, you've got ATB, which is a traditional Alberta bank, and they're spinning off a new brand called Brightside, which is a digital-only brand. And so yep. we're seeing consumers will start to see these new brands, offering them a proposition that's different. Then you also get these scenarios that are completely invisible to consumers. An example I use is how much the 
and there's something called a virtual card. It sounds like you get a 16-digit number that uh, works the same way as it would if you were making an e-commerce transaction and you punch in your credit card to buy something online. There's a whole industry behind the scenes that consumers probably interact with, maybe not on a daily basis, but relatively frequently. Uh, like if you go to uh, an online hotel or airline booking service, you, let's say Expedia or any of the equivalent ones like that, you put in your uh, purchase, you buy your airfare, Behind the scenes, they actually do a back-to-back -back transaction and generate a whole other virtual card transaction to pay Air Canada or United or whoever it is. So, there's these... so they're not floating your credit card information down to the end payer, right? Pre precisely. I mean, similar, I think the simplest application, and people are usually just are oblivious to this. One of the reasons why, you know, I love Apple Pay for many reasons, but one of the reasons is, is that I use a credit card on that and it generates a one-time transaction code, not my credit card number. Exactly. That basically flows it through. So that's so it's, there's a virtual card in the middle there that is on that's not there, that no one knows. And you know what? Go ahead and intercept that because there's no you're not gonna be able to fraudulently transact on that on that number. Precisely. Yeah. Exactly. And so we've got a client, uh, Scandinavia is another area that's been uh, really ahead of the curve in terms of digital payments and banking. We've got an infrastructure. Streaming, streaming, streaming music and everything else. Yeah. <laughs> Precisely, so, exactly. Um, Not so much on phones anymore. Yes, <laughs> they've lost the edge yeah. on that one a little bit. But yeah, we, we really sell to a pretty broad spectrum of uh, corporate clients, tech platforms, some that are customer mm -hmm. facing, some that are in themselves, these kind of back-end infrastructure providers. Mm -hmm. And we've got a pretty wide range. And, and that's, I think, one of the exciting things that's coming up is, uh, and there's this, uh, trying to think of who I can attribute this quote to. I didn't didn't make it up, but you know. Don't worry, so, I misattribute quotes all the time. So, something along the lines of, you know, the, the, <laughs> the future is banking everywhere, but just not from banks. So I think. Oh yeah, the entire, we've talked about the entire ambient concept of money that essentially like, you don't even worry about that anymore. And you know, it's. We've you talked about the have you read the the paper on the Copernican revolution in banking? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I figured you might have, but you know, you think about the, the infrastructure's there. You could tomorrow start a niche bank specifically for Midwestern farmers who, you know, do soybeans that specifically speaks to that message or does something unique that's that's important to them. But they basically when they go to transact, they don't stop to think about it, right? Yeah. Or it's just it's I'm already trans I'm already paying for stuff on my watch, right? It's just it's a matter of the only thing if it was if you get rid of the step where I select which card it is, does it do I even know? Do I even care? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, that, and that's definitely I think where the future is going, where it the current user experience where you're picking a physically you, yep. you hear the term top of wallet used a lot when banks talk yep. about how they're they're their marketing their strategy first, yep. i think that's definitely going away but there is still some brand affinity but as you said it's going to be uh is there i was just at a consulting uh round table and they posted like it was a general consumer survey in the U.S. and it was, think of your favorite brand. What is your level of satisfaction? It was 99% excellent and like 1% negative. And so it's like, why is your favorite brand getting in? It seems bizarre. There's always an outlier, right? So we'll call that the statistical rounding error. And they said, think of your bank and think of your level of satisfaction, 56% on average. And then think of your insurance company slightly lower. And I specifically, you know, I, I know the consultant. I said, look, one thing here, let's, I want to address one issue. How did the neobank score on that? And he said, <laughs> he smirked because he knew I was going with this, significantly higher. Like mm -hmm. in the 80s and 90s, yes. right? Yeah. And yeah. So when people talk about brand affinity to current traditional financial institutions, I don't know that I buy that. I think that they think that it exists, mm -hmm. but 
you know, it's this, I always make the point of Plato's allegory of the cave where people did not know that existence was not staring at bullet letters <laughs> in the cave. And when they finally got out, it's like, oh my God, this is like, what just happened? So when you think everybody's garbage and you're like, oh, this one's slightly less garbage. That's awesome. I love these guys for being slightly less garbage versus, oh my God, you're that. This is what it could be like. It's a night and day comparison. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and to be clear, the brand affinity is not for the banks specifically, but I think consumers will, you know, I think the Apple card, for example, it's a really slick looking card. Yeah. I think they will use- Not, not after a year's time, but yeah. Yeah, they'll, they'll do whatever they can yeah. to leverage their brand affinity. Yeah, and, so and, and non-traditional players come into the space, which terrifies every financial institution right yes. now. Yes, and that one incidentally, I think it's really funny that they're marketed as uh, the credit card, not by a bank, even though it's powered, though by, it's powered by Goldman, Goldman Sachs. Sachs and effectively by a bank. But yeah. uh, and I think that's going to be the brand affinity is going to be this different proposition. Um, there's um, Mogo here in Canada is pitching a yeah. carbon offset for your payments. So you're going to like you said, it could be Midwestern farmers. It could be um, it's, it speaks to you. digital native millennials that care about the environment, that's whatever it. it is, there's going to be some either big platform guys like Amazon, Apple coming up with a play like that or also this kind of mass customization yeah. that it's allowing this segmented yeah. view and then everyone gets whatever I think it'll be a matter of time before some banking as a service provider basically says, look, slap your logo and your brand over top of it. You know, you can tweak a little bit of this experience and then add whatever else you want. We handle the back end. Precisely. Right? Like yeah. it's a matter of time before that becomes the story. And next thing you know, every institution can basically be their own bank. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's one of the things we're betting on and our, one of our, uh, Pillars, I think, even in our kind of growth strategy would be enabling that future vision. Yeah. So staying ahead of the curve. So you're not the only player in the space. So let me ask you, why do companies choose you? Like, what's your unique value proposition? Mm -hmm. So in, in the modern, um, let's say, fintech product offerings, there's a lot of common themes in terms of what they're looking to do. Traditionally, there's are Not just service millennials, but continue. Right, yeah. Everybody's <laughs> like, oh, it's for kids. That, so. That's in there, yeah. 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 <laughs> but but at, at the end of the day, if they're going to be doing something that's faster, less expensive, anything else against the banks, you know, there's a, a need for the technology behind that to be able to power that. So um, trying to not be too technical here, but on our side, we've built a modern tech stack that then can integrate to the front end provider, whoever that is, whether mm -hmm. it's a TransferWise or some corporate entity dispersing payments to gig economy workers, whatever mm -hmm. these new use cases that are coming out. And what they need to do is deliver their front end service, uh, connect to the back end, effectively allowing them to write their app on our platform. Mm -hmm. And that may, maybe not on the platform, but allow so you've got these APIs, so the interfaces, the hooks that connect in, yep. and then they can then control that usability. So if transferize, it means you're traveling and you can dynamically have the currency travel with you. So you're always spending in a native currency. Yep. There's some rules and things that will come along with that. And so on our side, the platform allows for those hooks to connect into the front end providers, whatever they're yep. delivering to the client, as well as let's call it a layer of intelligence to as the transactions. So you don't have to code that. So for example, if I'm using one of these multi-currency cards and I go from, I'm traveling in the UK, I'm using you know the pound there. I also have Canadian US currency in there. And then I go to Euro, I go over to France and I go use the Euro and I spend too much. I don't have enough Euros on deposit in that account. What decision gets made as to which currency converts over into the Euro? Yeah, right? like, exactly. You know, and there's any number of decision points that could go there. Like, like for example, which one's got the more 
historically fair, what's the more favorable exchange rate based on history or whatever yeah. it could be, right? So yeah, that kind of intelligence is, you're going to take that burden off of the end provider is what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So Saving we, them the code. <laughs> precisely. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, um, and, and as opposed to kind of mainframe legacy providers uh, where they're really challenged, they can certainly stand up a, let's say, credit card program. They do yeah. it today. They can do that well. But then when you want to add in a more dynamic proposition. And that's another, I think, theme and um, commonality across the fintechs. Number one, they're doing something that's inherently going to be more digitally driven and require flexibility to do that. The other thing, and this is common across all tech providers, is this, let's call it the agile approach. So product on day one is going to be very different from product on year two, year three, year four. You're A-B testing, you're constantly doing feedback. Exactly. It's a living experiment while it's in process. Precisely. Yeah. And that and that breaks all of the mainframe legacy guys that are used to pretty static yeah. credit card portfolio from XYZ Main Street Bank that has, you know, maybe their update is adding that card into Apple Pay once yeah. every 10 years or something. Yeah. But it's a it's a pretty fixed target as opposed to the tech companies, which are constantly. It's evolving. almost like tech design. It's almost like disruption theory basically applied over top of, uh, you know, how you code things, right? Like this is the thing, right? Like they, you know, you're talking about companies who would make large strategic moves to mass market product versus mm-hmm. companies are basically saying, you're doing a really terrible job of servicing this niche. Right. Right. Like right. we're going after that niche and we're going to, maybe if you pivot to do that, you're going to use your infrastructure and we're, by the time you get the first one done, even if you copied us three months later, we've evolved it and made yep. it better and yep. you're stuck. Right. So it's a, it's a game, you know, it's the slow moving elephant versus the, versus the fast cheetah, you know, you know, who's going to win that race for that thing. But you know, the mass market is still not as selective as it could be in the future. Yes. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Very true. Yeah. No, it's um, so one of the things we talked about before this started is you guys cut your teeth over in Europe before you went anywhere else. So let's talk about why the decision was made. Mm-hmm. I've got my theories, but <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Happy to. So yeah, we are a Canadian founded and headquartered company. Mm-hmm. We have been since day one and no intention to change that. So based here in Toronto, but when we launched the business, not only did FinTech not exist as a word, but also the ecosystem was really non-existent, but we're seeing the framework taking shape um, in Europe. And, and there's some interesting things both from, I think, ground up and top down that were, were taking shape. So from the top down, you've got the a singles, so you've got all of the European economic zone under a single regulator. So yep. from our space, we operate heavily in the you know payments. So that's all of the kind of transactional banking activity. And there's the single European Payments Association called SEPA. So you've got one regulator, contrast that to the States, you've got 50 regulators. Mm-hmm. Then you've got, an, underneath that, they allowed for what they call the electronic money issuing or e-money issuing. So in Canada, the US, and a lot of other markets, if you wanted to issue a card to consumers, you've got to be a bank. But if you look at what a bank is, there's usually a lot of other things that go along with that. They're deposit taking, they're lending. There's it's a, a pretty high barrier for issuance of any form of card for payment. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so if you break this that apart- That could be very right. Intentionally as they rent seek, but continue. <laughs> precisely, precisely. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of reasons why people want to see it that way. And, there's and a lot I'll, of reasons why five institutions in this country want to see it that way. Yeah. There's a lot of yeah. reasons why lots of people don't want to see it that way. We yeah. just don't have lobbying dollars. But anyway, mm-hmm. continue on. And, and so the European group, 
their credit, and they're they're still doing this now, have really put in and pushed forward a lot of regulations that are driving competition. So one of the first ones was this e-money issuance. So you and I could tomorrow, with enough cash in our pocket, could go open up a neobank, get our own issuing license, talk to Visa or MasterCard or whatever rails we want to connect to, and start issuing cards. And we'd have to be regulated. There's still a... Absolutely. There's still, a, high, there's still a burden, but mm. a right, well, a good burden to be imposed on people. Correct. And, and, and the burden is a lot less than if we wanted to be lending or doing mortgages or whatever yeah. else, as it should be. And they've continued to put that forward with uh, what's these things called the Payment Services Directive, the most recent one is called the Second Payment Services Directive or PSD2, yep. really technical, but really what it's doing is pushing forward a lot of access to bank accounts, free flow of information. Mm-hmm. So other apps and services can, if the consumer consents, access your banking information. And then that's allowing for new tech disruptors to come in and provide wealth management services or personal yep. financial management, things like that. So yeah, it's been this really up. fertile environment where we saw a lot of new entrants coming in, a lot of competition. There's also been these industries that have sprung out of this environment. So when we work with clients that are banks, many times their sole business objective is actually to be what we'd call a platform bank or a sponsor bank. So Hmm. they're not actually looking to go acquire their own customers. Their entire business is just providing a backend. Sorry, I'm shaking my head because I can't believe it's gotten to that. Like, so damn, you're really like you already have. So literally the, I've seen a couple of purpose, like a couple of banks pivot like that in the Mm -hmm. US, right? Where they're like, hey, you know what? Banking as a service is going to be our thing. You're telling me that that's far more common in Europe altogether? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah. Oh, regulatory wonderland. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. I mean, we've seen, we're starting to see that here with a handful of very of smaller one players, but still such early stages. But it's, uh, wow. Yeah. Wow, impressive. Yeah. It, it's been a great thing, I think, to be able to operate. So we're active in... North America, Europe, APAC, and we're trying to expand even further from there. But you can see globally <laughs> how these... Slide. Okay, you're missing Africa. Continue. And the Europe, in many ways, is leading. And you see different markets in Africa, you could say, is leapfrogging in some areas when it comes to digital payments. Well, it's the, where you go depends on where your base was, right? Yes. Like, you know, the Ben Thompson, Mr. Hecker, made this point about why did chip and pin and why did touch payments take so long in the U.S.? It's because credit cards were already good enough, yes. right? Yeah. And then Europe started later, so they developed chip and pin, and then that was the good enough. And then China's got the QR codes, and that's good enough. And they're probably going to be on QR codes for a very long time, and now we're leapfrogging them to some degree. Yeah. And yeah. Africa is starting from a base of, I mean, M-Pesa is one of the great success stories of international transa- of currency transactions, right? You literally have a virtual currency being a preferred currency in a, in a nation. Exactly. Like, yeah. Unbelievable story. Yeah, yeah. Crazy story. But it's because they started from such a poor base, right? So starting starting from zero has its advantages. <laughs> exactly. Well said. Yeah. So <laughs> I think um, you take Europe and contrast that to you know North America. Not only do you have those banks that are just bank as a service or platform banks. Yep. It's actually a couple steps ahead where we've gone through the curve where banks launched to do that. And now they're actually starting to lose business because it's so easy for the transferizes and everyone else in the world to start their own and get their own issuing license. So mm-hmm. you, which is a, coming back to your point where there's this future state of a wide range of niche players where the barriers get low enough from a technology and from a regulatory perspective yep. where you could have these purpose-built financial institutions that get their own issuing license, banking license to offer yep. cards for whatever subset of the group. So there's, and I think we haven't seen equilibrium or maturity in the market yet. Mm-hmm. But Europe, I think, gives some signals towards this really interesting space where you've got players that are specifically 
banking platform providers that then also act as incubators. So some companies, you know, TransferWise would be included in that when they launched. So many plugs, man. They, 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 were, the show. they, were, they were leveraged. Um, well, and this goes actually for, I'd yeah. say, all neobanks. I don't yeah. need to name them specifically, but most of the neobanks we see launched using one of these platform providers. And then as they grew to scale, got their own banking license to launch their own. And so it's an interesting yeah, model. ladder up just like Netflix, right? You gotta, you know, stop the margin. Well, at some point where you're paying that provider becomes foregone margin, right? Yes. So it makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. But they, this is classic innovator's dilemma. It's awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so it's interesting. I mean, it's, um, yeah, Europe. And it's interesting too, because what we're talking about here, oftentimes everybody's first thing is, is safety. It's always about mm -hmm. safety. And I think the difference is, is that what we're seeing is we're, we're seeing the old genre or the old realm regime where basically you know you had you had regulation and enforcement required large scale of bodies and systems in order to basically do that to an industry now where the platforms by nature are baking in the security that's necessary mm -hmm. so now that that barrier to entry is disappearing right and yes. it's it's you know much to the chagrin of the canadian banks who always like to say their size is their is their sign of security to which my response has always been no regulations your security mm -hmm. if regulation becomes essentially a platform tick box for lack of a better term, that's a very big game changer. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's a quote from, uh, and I won't, again, this will be another quote. I won't be able to We're properly attribute, but there, there's a from <laughs> RBC, which was effectively, as much as you hear talk about the regulatory environment, that's not the challenge that's facing banks. It's the technology and the, the transformation that's coming through, which is to anyone else oh, yeah. who'd say, well, obviously, but it's, it seems like a rare acknowledgement from the large banks to actually say that the future and where the outlook is going is much more driven from the technology and what's happening. And as you said- But they've experienced it. I mean, they've mm -hmm. had, I mean, you, you neglect your backend systems for decades, literally decades. Mm -hmm. And you just keep on, and I've always said like, so at no point did you say, let's just stop using that server and use this newer one <laughs> and then figure out a way to get maybe pain in the butt, but why are we continually using 70 year old, well, 1970s technology to put stuff from the nineties on? Like it made no sense. So you neglect that. And then there's been a couple of infamous projects that have attempted to fix the problem, blown tremendous amounts of money, resulted in nothing happening. And mm -hmm. then you also have a bunch of M&A deals that have gone intensely poorly because they couldn't integrate the backend systems, yeah. right? So they've got their lumps from trying to fix this. But the question becomes just how big a problem is it that they're going to be able to fix it at all. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Now, if you look at statistically, I think it's banks are spending billions on their IT and infrastructure, but three quarters of it is going to just maintaining systems. Yep. So they're stuck in this cycle where the systems are, as you said, so dated and they've got these processes that, you know, I think it's. It's under 10% of all of the process flows, cons anything a consumer does or interacts yeah. with a consumer corporate entity, if you're touching a bank and whether it's applying for a new yeah. card or account or something, less than 10% of that can actually be done digitally, to your point. Right you, now, usually, it will, usually could it's, be done a lot more digitally. Yeah, so you might have that 10% is probably the front end interface and then yeah. in the back end, it's a hamster wheel that's still actually processing. Yeah, somebody so, else prints that up and types it into the mainframe, unfortunately. Exactly. And it was at that same one where they talked about, what do you call it, uh, robotic, um, RPA, robotic programming um, automation, where basically you 
hook something, hook up that old server to another computer, and it reads the pixels that come out and translates them in. And you know, someone asked the question, you know, you know, should we doing this or should we doing should we doing APIs? And it's like, is that a question, really? You, you think getting to the core data and actually digging into that is is not better than trying to take screenshots? Essentially, it is a, it's a big difference. But yeah, it's um, it is a big problem. And, it, and you know, I, I I often say that the real issue is the incentive system that these executives are facing. They're not rewarded for for basically showing no income like Amazon mm -hmm. is, right? Like they're they're rewarded for driving the bottom line up steady so they can pay out a higher dividend and that's it. And yes. frankly, if, if, a, if an executive said, you know what, we are going to literally blow every penny we make for the next two years to solve this problem once and for all, that stock would not be rewarded. That stock would be crippled. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think the data from the uh, technology and, and the industry consultants is I think it's typically a six year process if they're actually going to do a full modernization and update yeah. the platforms. So can you imagine, as you said, a, a CEO yeah. that's being graded and incentivized on a quarterly basis to make the decision on a six year time horizon that once they come They're out the 10 other years end of that... and six years on average, like <laughs> right. this is like, so you want me to take the hit on a project that even if I, if this is day one, I won't be around to see the end of. Exactly. And I'm definitely not going to be around to see the end of if I take it. Right. Yes. Like I get it. They're, they're kind of behind the eight ball. On yes. This. They, they do not have, they're not, they don't have the incentive structure just due to the way wall street and bank street treat yeah. them. But it's a, uh, it's, it's a problem that is only going to lead to their undermining and not eventual demise, but a big chunk of them being taken out over time. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's the same old thing. You know, anyone anyone who's using a neobank, and even in Canada, we're not that big, but uh, if you look at if you look at Coho, our largest player, they're three, four years old, and they're the equivalent in terms of number of depositors of roughly, they would, they would be one of the top four credit unions in the country, hmm. right? So that's not bad. You look at... You look at Revolut and they're at over 7 million depositors versus Bank of Montreal at eight. Right. Right. Yep. Like those types of experience start to become the norm for people over time. And then they start saying, wait a minute, you want me to wait three days to move money between accounts? Remind me why I'm depositing my, my, my check in your account. Please remind me. Right. Like, oh, and oh, look, Revolut just came out with mortgages or an affiliation with a company that does mortgages. Exactly. And Kachunk. You got to start to bleed a little by little. So yeah. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to shed a tear for that, but let's continue on. So <laughs> before we wrap up, I have three questions I ask everybody. The first one is if you had one wish for something you can change in your industry and the company you're working on, work, working with, what would it be? One wish for the industry? Yeah, for your company or whatever. It's mm, a great question. Um, Everybody says the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I can be impatient sometimes. So uh, I would say <laughs> like? uh, a fast forward button. You know, I think a lot of what we talked about, the writings on the wall, and I think what you just described in terms of the bank just gradually losing this stranglehold. And often you hear the, uh, it related to what's taken place with the telco space. Mm -hmm. Telcos are still there, but they're these dumb pipes that transmit data. That's it. And you've got the other players that are layering value on top of that. I think that's gonna take place. I think you see the industry moving this direction. You see people innovating, but you've mm -hmm. still got this, as you coming before, we were talking about you know Africa versus North America. It's because a lot of things are good enough We've got this very slow progression yeah. and we've got a regulatory hurdles and we've got banks that have a lot of muscle and a lot of ability behavior, to yeah. try and slow it down. And, and even when we're launching with clients, you know, one of the things that we're continually working through is how can we jump through those gates a little bit faster 
but there's still a lot of gates to get through because Absolutely. at the end of the day, it's real money, it's yeah. personal data, things like that. So it's speeding these things along. So I think it's really exciting what the future looks like. And I think it's going to benefit all of us in terms of better user experience, more money in our pocket. I think that competition is going to give us more value. Competition is such an important thing we don't see in this country. For it. Yep. No, it's it's interesting because you you hear them, it's interesting their viewpoint on this. They're like, oh, you know, this happens all the time. We'll just, you know, buy these things out. And then, yeah, and like you'll buy them out and you'll ruin them with the way you normally <laughs> think, right? Like who's going to want to deal with that? Yeah, I remember a lot of people deal with these companies because they're not you. Exactly. Right? There was a wealth management company specifically targeting a certain niche that I'm not going to get into, but if you're in Canada, you can figure this out. Highly paid niche. And uh, when they got bought out by a major bank, oh my God, the, the blowback by their membership was enormous. Hmm. And they were just hemorrhaging like crazy. And then, you know, similar, the other the other side of this too is that, you know, they'll try it themselves. They'll try to create like the robo-advisor or whatever, yeah. and it'll fail miserably because they've applied their own model over top of it. And then they'll say, well, yeah, robo's dead. You know, this thing doesn't work. <laughs> Meanwhile, like the well simples of the world are just like, excuse me? Like, yeah. <laughs> how many people am I bringing on every day? Yeah, they're, they're but, and you no, know, they're just millennials, they're small. Like, what do you think's inheriting all that money that you guys, your older clients are losing? Like, what do you think going to happen in the future. The lifetime expected value of the loyalty of a millennial is far larger than the lifetime expected value of the, of the loyalty of a 60-year-old who goes to the bank every day and gets their bank book updated. So second question, what's the biggest challenge that the company's faced in getting to where it is today? Maybe give that a two-part answer. One is, I think, specific to being in Canada and I think worth raising. Um, and it's probably better now, but certainly at the time when we started our business, uh, let's say almost 10 years ago, um, the ecosystem in Canada to support a fintech or tech-driven business that required a larger upfront investment to build mm -hmm. a platform and try and scale this with an international focus. Yep. There's not the venture, the PE ecosystem here. And because a lot of the funds and capital is from the banks, and we've had this history of mm. mining and everything else, yep. you know, there just hasn't been the, I think, let's say the support system as we've seen in London or San Francisco, other markets. Yeah, um, so there's that, a more diverse set of equity pools down there. Exactly. In some ways, you know, that gives us a bit of an advantage now that we've lived through it. And we say, there's not a lot of other people that have made the same bet and were able to raise tens of millions of dollars to build and mm -hmm. you know, on something that has a long-term return on that equity because it's a, a big bet and you got to scale it and it takes time. There's no fast track. So that pays off now. But I think that was a real challenge, something mm -hmm. we had to live through. And I think that's Something that I'm hoping that Canada, as we see some more tech successes, maybe Shopify's of the world start yep. to create their own uh, Shopify mafia, just like PayPal did. Exactly. exactly. Uh, yeah. We'd love to see that, and then we could we could drive some more of that, and and it is getting better, and there's there's more yep. activity there. So that I think that'd be one, and then the other I think would be just I think going through a lot of the complexities of the space. You know, it's a challenging ecosystem and one that's been every single year. It's different right now. It's banking, it's platform, open banking, real-time payments. A few years ago, it was digital payments and Apple Pay and everything else. It, yep. It's constantly moving. evolving and constantly reducing friction. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Fantastic. Last part, what excites you the most about what it is you're working on? What gets you up in the morning to keep doing what it is you're doing? The cliche answer would be our clients and their success. But it, in this case, it's really true. The reality is we're the plumbing. So mm -hmm. I don't get that excited about the servers and the cloud management yeah. and the bits and bytes of what we do. It's being the coach who gets to watch his kids go out and, you know, it's, basically score goals, it's right? Really like true. That's basically yeah, it. no, it's, yeah. it's, it's absolutely true. And, and I think in, for your audience, they probably don't care that much about what's going on on the engine and yeah. the pistons moving in our world and what's actually happening. That. 
Right. Yeah. What you want to see is the the client crossing the finish line, and that looks like a bunch of different things because we are playing in a lot of different verticals and segments. But I, I think it's exciting for us to see how we're contributing factor to a lot of these, I think, really exciting trends that we're seeing in banking payments and this fintech disruption, and we get to play a supporting role in that. So I, I think that's Fantastic. very exciting. Well, thank you for taking the time. And I think this worked out well and keep doing what you're doing and enabling other fintechs to continue to put dents in my least favorite <laughs> sector of the economy. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. Appreciate thank it. You. Take care. Thanks. So that was my interview with Giles Sutherland of Carta. Hope you enjoyed that. And a uh, big supporter of what they're doing as they continue to stick at the banks <laughs> for like a better term and creating opportunities for new, more engaging and better companies to come along. So as always, I'm Jason Pereira. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at fintechimpact.co.